And once you've got your seat, do uh, open your Bibles again, if you've closed them, to Philippians chapter 1 on page 1178. Uh, we'll be referring down to it as we have a look at it this morning. Let's pray before we do that. Heavenly Father, thank you that you speak to us through your word. And pray that as we look at it this morning, you would be working in us by your spirit, helping us to see more clearly uh, how it is that we can uh, live for you. Amen. If you were here last week, you will have heard from our vicar Paul that for the Apostle Paul, the gospel was the main thing. It was his main concern. He was in prison when he wrote this letter to the Philippians, and adding insult to injury as well as being in prison, there were also people uh, outside trying to stir up trouble for him. But he wasn't concerned about either of those things as long as the gospel was advancing, as long as more people were hearing the gospel and coming home to God as a result, he could put his comfort, his reputation, even his freedom to one side. For Paul, the advance of the gospel was the main thing. But now in verse 27, we get to his main point of the whole letter, the point which you could say that everything else in the letter is an expansion of. If the gospel is the main thing, then what does that mean for the Philippians in their day-to-day -day lives? If the gospel is the main thing, then the Philippians should be concerned about gospel-worthy living. Of course, Philippians was uh, originally written as a letter to the Philippian church, and so it would have been read out publicly to them all uh, when it arrived. They couldn't scan it and send it to everyone as a PDF. And as it was being read, this point in the letter was the moment for, for Antigonus, asleep in the back row, uh, to be nudged by his friend, uh, nudged awake, because if they were only going to take home one point from this whole letter, it was this one. Actually, this one sentence, our whole reading was, was originally one sentence um, in the original language, one epic sentence, one crucial thought at the heart of Paul's letter to the Philippians. Paul, up until this point, had been speaking about how himself, uh, had been speaking about himself and how what had happened to him had served to advance the gospel. But now he shifts focus from himself to the Philippians. We've seen what it meant for Paul. Now, what will it mean for them to live lives that advance the gospel? Paul begins in verse 27, whatever happens, no matter what happens, only remember this, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Now, I promise not to mention the, the original Greek that this letter was written in again after this point, but what we have lost a little here in translation is the language of citizenship. What we have as whatever happens, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel might more literally have been only live as citizens worthy of the gospel of Christ. Means the same thing, so don't worry about it. But Paul actually mentions citizenship again later on in the letter. See, the Philippians were, in a way, dual citizens. I know something about dual citizenship. I'm a British citizen, I live in England, and I have a British passport to prove it. But I also have this, this other passport. I have an Australian passport. Because even though I'm a British citizen living in England, I'm also an Australian citizen. And I retain that citizenship even though I'm not physically there. And it was similar with the Philippians. 
they'd uh, mostly have been Roman citizens. Though it was in Macedonia, Philippi was an outpost of the Roman Empire. So to be born in Philippi was to be born a Roman citizen. And that was nothing to be scoffed at. At that time, Roman citizenship was perhaps one of the most prestigious statuses you could have in the entire world. But the Philippians were dual citizens, and their other citizenship completely outstripped their Roman citizenship. As I mentioned, Paul refers to it again later in the letter in chapter 3 and verse 20, where he says, but our citizenship is in heaven. They lived in Philippi, but they were citizens of heaven. One commentator puts it like this, as Philippi was a colony of Rome in Macedonia, so the church was a colony of heaven in Philippi, whose members were to live as its citizens in Philippi. Whatever happened, the Philippians were to conduct themselves in a manner or live as citizens worthy of the gospel of Christ. Their way of living was to be worthy of Christ's gospel. In his letter to Titus, Paul talks about the way that Titus was to teach different groups of people to behave. And he ends that passage by saying, so that they will make the teaching about God our Savior attractive. And I think it was similar with the Philippians. They were to live lives that made the gospel of Christ attractive. They were to represent it well. I was staying with friends of mine recently, and their son was talking about the fact that at his secondary school, there's a new rule that all the students have to wear their school blazers for 15 minutes after the school day finishes, uh, no matter where they are. And if they're, they're caught without their blazer on during that time, then they get detention. Uh, now, he was a little bit indignant about this. Um, I'm not sure what the reason was, but I suppose it had something to do with the fact that the students are representing the school as they walk about the streets surrounding the school. And the school wants to be well represented. They want the students to look the part, I guess. And it was the same for the Philippians, actually. The Bible speaks of Christians as those who've clothed themselves with Christ. And being clothed in Christ, the Philippians are to live uh, lives that are worthy of his gospel, that represent him well. At this point, um, it all seems perhaps a little bit inward focused. We might say, I thought Paul was concerned about the gospel advancing, uh, going out, reaching more people. Uh, why isn't he talking to the Philippians about doing that? And never fear, he will speak to the Philippians about that. But gospel advancement needs to start at home. How can we invite people home to God if the house is in disarray? We will never be perfect, that's true, but things need to be in order. The Philippians need to make sure that they are living lives worthy of the gospel before they hold the gospel out to others. And in fact, doing the former will help them to do the latter better. Gospel sharing, contending for the gospel, living lives worthy of the gospel needs to start at home. But I guess the question then is, how on earth were they to do that? How on earth are we to do that? How can we live lives worthy of the gospel of Christ? If that doesn't strike us as challenging and perhaps a little bit daunting, then uh, perhaps we've forgotten or, or never really uh, managed to grasp in the first place how extraordinary the gospel is. Gospel means good news, uh, which strikes me as something of an understatement. In fact, to say that it was the best news of the century would still be an understatement. 
The truth is that it's the best news of eternity. It's the news that though we were lost, we can be found. That though we were dead, we can have life. That though we were spiritually orphans, we can be adopted into God's family and come home to Him. And not just now, but forever. It's the gospel of Christ because though we couldn't ever earn that ourselves, He earned it for us by dying the death that we deserved in our place. It's the best news that there has ever been, and it's the best news that there will ever be. If it's news that you're unfamiliar with, uh, then it's well worth exploring, literally life-saving news. If we are familiar with it, then I'd hope that simply reminding ourselves of it, reminding ourselves just what good news it is, reminding ourselves of all that God has done for us, will serve to motivate us to live lives worthy of the gospel of Christ. But having been motivated to do it, how are we to actually do it? Well, Paul elaborates in the rest of the letter on what it will look like for the Philippians to live this way, but he begins before he's even finished his sentence. He goes on in our passage today to show that gospel-worthy living will involve gospel unity and gospel courage. Uh, Let's begin with gospel unity. This uh, lifestyle that the Philippians were to lead, uh, the, the citizenship that they were to live up to, was something that they were to do regardless of whether Paul was with them or not. He wants to visit them, he wants to be back with them, but uh, he, was, he was at the time uh, unable to return to them. But they were to live this way either way. They're not to be like a secondary school class that behaves when the teacher's in the room and then as soon as they leave, runs amok. No, Paul wanted to live this way regardless of whether or not he was present with them. And of course, it was only humanly speaking that Paul was their leader. Ultimately, it was Jesus who was their Lord, and he was always with them. It's what he promised his disciples uh, immediately before he ascended into heaven. He said, I am with you always to the end of the age. Jesus lived in them by his Spirit, and it was united in that Spirit that they were to advance the gospel. Paul says from halfway through verse 27, then whether I come and see you or only hear about you in my absence, I will know that you stand firm in the one spirit, striving together as one for the faith of the gospel. They were to strive for the gospel. It's quite a vigorous word, isn't it? Just accepting the gospel and then sitting back and waiting for eternity isn't the way to go about it. They were to strive, to fight, to labor, to contend for the faith of the gospel. And the gospel is something worth striving for, but it's not something that they were to strive for alone. We've already seen in Philippians, and we'll go on to continue to see, that the Philippian church faced pressure both from inside and outside the church. And both of these pressures are addressed in our passage, and in this gospel unity point, it's pressure from within, the church that's addressed. There were relational problems in the church. We've seen already in the letter that there were those who preached Christ for their own personal gain, motivated by envy and rivalry. And we'll go on to see in a few weeks' time that there was infighting in the church as well. But Paul says that this shouldn't be. The Philippians were to strive for the faith of the gospel, but they weren't to do it alone. They were to strive together, standing firm in one spirit. And it was the gospel itself that enabled them to do that. 
The gospel promises that those who trust in Jesus are united with him. Christians are described as those who are in Christ. And logically, we're united if we're Christians, not just with him, but with everyone else who's united with him also. It's the same spirit that lives in everyone who believes. Paul says in his letter to the Galatians, So in Christ Jesus you are all children of God through faith. For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourself with him. There is neither Jew nor Greek, neither slave nor free, there is, nor is there male or female, for you are all one in Christ. Disunity is unbecoming of God's people. Disunity is not a mark of gospel-worthy living. It was together that they were to strive for the faith of the gospel. Imagine a three-legged race. Uh, two competitors are tied together at the ankle who need to run in unison, working together to get to the finish line first. They're united, they're literally united, they're tied together, but they then need to strive together if they have any hope of winning. If they're tied together but they're disunited, then it won't work. If they're failing to communicate and trying to run in opposite directions, then they're both going to end up flat on their faces. As Christians, we're united. We're united by the Spirit of God who lives in us, but we then need to strive together in order to advance the gospel. If we're working at cross-purposes, we won't get anywhere. Far from advancing the gospel, we're more likely to bring it into disrepute. It's wonderful at St. Mark's that we have our annual vision, uh, helping people come home to God. It helps us to stand firm in one spirit. It helps us to strive together as one for the faith of the gospel because it gives us a united vision. And it's the faith of the gospel that we're striving for as we aim to help people come home to God. I'll let you in on a little secret. Our annual vision each year is never actually anything new. There's a sense in which it's actually the same every single year, whether it's courageous or all-in or helping people come home to God. They're all just ways of focusing us on advancing the gospel. Gospel advancement viewed from different angles, if you like. And God forbid we ever have a vision that's focused on anything else. As bad as being disunited is, it would be equally bad to be united but striving for something other than the faith of the gospel. Imagine if our two friends competing in the three-legged race uh, were running in perfect unison, as if of one mind, but running in the opposite direction from the finish line. Uh, what good would unity be then? It's what we'd be like if we were perfectly united, but, for striving, but striving for something other than the faith of the gospel. Or indeed, if we were striving for an alternative gospel, one softened so that it became more appealing or changed to be more socially acceptable. As a church family, we're to be united in striving, and it's for the faith of the gospel we are to strive. Our annual vision, helping people come home to God, is a wonderful way of focusing us on doing that, particularly as we hurtle on towards the season of Christmas, when we'll have so many wonderful opportunities uh, to help people come home to God in different ways. Be as one, striving for the sake of the gospel. That unity and that gospel focus are marks of gospel-worthy living. 
Another great thing about unity uh, is safety in numbers, uh, like a herd of wildebeest being harried by a pride of lions. And that brings us on to our second mark of gospel-worthy living that Paul covers. It's gospel courage. It's clear that while the disciples were facing pressure from within, they were also facing pressure from without. And that isn't particularly surprising. Philippi was a place that was, generally speaking, hostile to the gospel. We read in Acts chapter 16 of Paul's first visit to Philippi. Uh, And during that visit, he and Silas were thrown in jail. We read in Acts chapter 16, verse 20, they brought them before the magistrate and said, these men are Jews and are throwing our city into uproar by advocating customs unlawful for us Romans to accept or practice. We've already thought about the fact that Philippi was an outpost of the Roman Empire. And as such, it was a center for the imperial cult, uh, those who worshipped Caesar. So for the Philippian Christians, to claim that Jesus was Lord instead of Caesar was countercultural to the point where it may well have been at least one of the causes of the opposition they were facing from outside the church. And this opposition might well have been incredibly intimidating. After all, when Paul and Silas were there, they were severely flogged and thrown into prison. But look at the kind of gospel courage Paul calls for uh, from them. Have a look at verse 28. Paul's been telling them, remember, to strive as one for the faith of the gospel. And he goes on to say, verse 28, without being frightened in any way by those who oppose you. This is a sign to them that they will be destroyed, but that you will be saved. Paul doesn't say, if you happen uh, to, to be opposed. The Philippians are facing opposition. And from both the New Testament and 2,000 years of church history since, it seems that opposition is more of the norm rather than a possibility whenever the gospel is advancing. Where the gospel is advancing, there is likely to be opposition. And Paul says, don't be frightened by it. Gospel, uh, with gospel unity, it was the truth of the gospel itself that showed how they were to be united. And it's the same here with gospel courage. The gospel, uh, the main thing, is the reason that the Philippians can uh, have gospel courage in the face of opposition to the gospel. The reason that the Philippians need not fear is that God's word is clear that those who persistently and unchangingly oppose the gospel of Jesus will terribly face destruction. But wonderfully, those who seek the advancement of the gospel will be saved. Paul isn't saying that bad things won't happen if the Philippians are trusting in Jesus and seeking to advance the gospel. He's saying that they should be fearless when opposition does come to the gospel. They can be fearless because no matter how severe the opposition is, it cannot take away the benefits that have been bestowed on them because of the gospel, which far exceed uh, whatever opposition to it may cost, even if it means their death ultimately, because the gospel is more powerful than death and will see them through safe to the other side of it. The Philippians can be sure that no matter what the opposition, they will ultimately be saved. And so they can be fearless in the face of it. And we shouldn't miss the last four words of verse 28, and that by God. 
We might be forgiven for reading verses 27 and 28 right up until those last four words and thinking that it sounds like it's all about us and our efforts, uh, that we advance the gospel by our strength and determination and work up courage within ourselves when facing opposition to it. But that is not the case. The gospel is a free gift from God. Salvation is the work of God. It's only having received that gift that we're able to respond to it by being united in striving for its advancement and have courage when it's opposed. It's made even clearer, uh, shockingly clear perhaps, in the following verses that there'll be opposition. And I think that the verse contains at least two surprises for us. Paul is talking about two things that God has granted uh, to the Philippians, that God has gifted to them, if you like. For it has been granted to you on behalf of Christ, not only to believe in him, uh, so that's the first gift, uh, the first thing that God has granted to the Philippians is belief in Christ. And I think that that is the first surprise, actually, because naturally, we might think that belief in Christ is something that we drum up in ourselves, but actually, God has granted us belief in Christ if we believe in him. Uh, that's the first present, and it's a wonderful one. There's still another one to come, though. I don't know if when giving presents, you kind of save the best present till last so that it will be uh, the last one unwrapped. You might expect the next present to be even better. So we read on, for it has been granted to you on behalf of Christ not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for him. An even bigger surprise the gospel not only equips the Philippians to have gospel courage in the face of suffering for the gospel, uh, for Christ's sake, but it also tells them that suffering for Christ's sake is a gift from God. And I, I take it that Paul here is talking about suffering for Christ's sake, for the, uh, for the specific advancement of the gospel. There are certain places elsewhere in the Bible that talk about suffering more generally and uh, how we're to respond to that. But here, suffering for Christ's sake is a gift from God. And that's extraordinary. It's counterintuitive, isn't it, to think that suffering could be a gift. Yet even though we shouldn't necessarily be seeking out suffering, Paul says that when it happens as a result of the advancement of the gospel, and it's likely to, we're to see it as something that God has granted to us. To see how that can possibly be the case, we need to remember who it is we are suffering for. It's suffering for Christ. And the thing is that suffering for Christ makes us more like him. Jesus is the one who faced ultimate suffering for the advancement of the gospel in his death on the cross. And though suffering we face for his sake is likely to be different uh, from his and different from Paul's and probably different from the Philippians, we can still expect to face opposition and suffering if we're striving together to bring people home to God. I guess that suffering may look different for each of us. Uh, again, it's, it, it, it's unlikely to be as, as severe as the suffering faced by some of our Christian brothers and sisters around the world, but it may well mean difficult conversations with our friends and family who hold different beliefs to us. Uh, it may mean living with very countercultural beliefs on some ethical issues, uh, facing rejection when we tell others about the gospel, damage to our reputations, perhaps foregoing material comforts in order to financially support the advancement of the gospel. And we can see it as a gift from God when we do face pressure because of, because of the gospel, because it unites us with Jesus and makes us more like him. 
and we can ultimately look forward to being glorified with him. He suffered and was glorified, and if we suffer for him, we can expect to be glorified with him. It's the example Paul was setting for the Philippians himself, even as he followed Christ's example. He goes on to say, so you, uh, since you are going through the same struggle you saw I had and now hear that I still have. So we're to be as one in striving for the sake of the gospel. And we're to be fearless under pressure and extraordinarily grateful in suffering. One commentator has said, the content of Paul's explanation is something contemporary Christians hear reluctantly, either out of guilt that so many of us look so little like this, or out of fear that it might someday be true of us. Let's not hear this reluctantly this morning, though, but seek to live gospel-worthy lives, not being reluctant to work as one for the advancement of the gospel or shrinking back uh, when that advancement involves opposition, but striving as one for the faith of the gospel, having courage when it's opposed, and using any suffering that comes our way because of it as an opportunity to grow more like Jesus, the one at the heart of the gospel we're striving for and all the while reminding ourselves just how good the good news is that we are to be living lives worthy of. Let's stand and pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for the extraordinary gift of the gospel. And thank you that having given it to us, uh, you equip us by your spirit to live lives worthy of it. And pray that you would be helping us to be living lives increasingly worthy of the gospel, Lord. Help us to see places where we risk being disunited in our striving for its advancement. Please would you um, heal relationships where that is necessary. Unite us uh, where there is division, Lord. Uh, Where we lack courage in the face of opposition, uh, please would you uh, stir up courage in us by your spirit, where we, where we even fear the thought of opposition, uh, let alone opposition itself. Uh, work in us by your spirit to give us not only gospel unity, but gospel courage as we seek to advance it. In Jesus' name, amen.